Warm welcome to First Move. I'm Rahel Solomon in today for Julia Chatterley. And just ahead on today's show, Moscow and Kyiv trading blame for the destruction of a large dam in Russian-held southern Ukraine with hundreds forced to evacuate due to flooding and new fears over Ukraine's massive nuclear power plant. We have the very latest just ahead. Plus, Prince Harry versus the tabloids. The Duke of Sussex testifying against the Mirror Newspaper Group in London's High Court, accusing reporters of phone hacking and illegal surveillance. And Vision Pro, ready to go. Apple unveiling the long-awaited mixed reality headset, its first major product launch in years. Many calling it the dawn of a new computing age. But what about that hefty price tag? We will discuss with tech investor Dan Ives. And turning to the global markets, U.S. futures a bit weaker after Monday's modest pullback. The S&P 500 coming very close to finishing the day in bull market territory or a 20 percent rise from recent lows. Europe trading mostly lower as well. And a mostly downbeat close in Asia. The Australian Central Bank surprising investors with an unexpected quarter of a percent rate hike that dragged the market lower In China, reports say that Beijing is asking its big banks to cut deposit rates to try to jumpstart growth. Meantime, the Ukraine dam collapsed, impacting commodity markets. The price of wheat currently up more than 2 percent on fears that flooding in the region will affect supply. And let's get the latest from Ukraine now. That's where we begin the show. It's not clear at this moment what caused the destruction of the dam in the Russian-controlled area. Ukraine claims that the Russian military blew up the dam in, quote, panic. But the Kremlin says it was a sabotage attack by Ukrainian forces. Downstream, people are getting out of their homes as floodwaters rise. A reservoir upstream from the dam supplies water for the Zaporizhia nuclear plant. The U.N. nuclear watchdog IAEA says there is no immediate threat to the plant. But of course, lots more to watch here. So let's bring in Claire Sebastian. She joins us now. So Claire, what more do we know about the cause of the attack? Because as I said, Kyiv blames Moscow. Moscow blames Kyiv. What more can you tell us? We just don't know at this point, Rahel. They're still assessing the damage. Both sides, as you say, very firmly placing the blame uh, on each other. Dmitry Peskov, the Kremlin spokesman, uh, said just a little earlier that this was done by Ukraine because, as he said, uh, having launched their large-scale offensive two days ago, of course, that hasn't been confirmed uh, by Ukraine. Now the Ukrainian armed forces are not achieving their goals. He also accused them uh, of trying to choke off the water to Crimea because, of course, that reservoir just upstream of the dam supplies water to the Crimean Peninsula. The Ukrainians, though, are, of course, saying this is a terrorist attack by Russia. The foreign minister calling this deliberate uh, and long planned. Uh, And the head of the presidential administration saying this is ecocide, a reference to the potential environmental damage of this. What we do know for sure uh, is that the flooding is now increasingly widespread. We understand the water levels are still rising. The Ukrainian interior uh, minister just uh, in the last hour or so saying 24 settlements are flooded. They have evacuated over a thousand people. And we know that evacuations are happening uh, on the Russian side as well. This is a dam that straddles the the Dnieper River, which in itself is basically the front line uh, in this conflict. Russian-controlled territory to one side, Ukrainian-controlled territory to the other. So it is very much on the front line here. And both sides are affected by this flooding. Claire, is Ukraine saying what Russia stands to benefit from allegedly doing this? 
So they, as you said, uh, have said that Russia did this in panic, perhaps uh, about their imminent counteroffensive, but they are not uh, being particularly explicit in that Russia, as I say, uh, did the, the Kremlin spokesman did reference the counteroffensive, saying that it's not going well, uh, and this is why um, Ukraine allegedly did this. Uh, the head of the Joint Forces of the Ukrainian Army, though, did uh, reference the counteroffensive as well and said, "Look, uh, this isn't going to affect us uh, because we had already essentially modelled for Russia doing something like, something like this back in the autumn." President Zelensky himself had said that Russia had mined the dam and might be considering blowing it up. So it was already something that they were looking at with some concern. I think if you look at the map uh, of where this is, you could potentially say uh, that it might complicate any Ukrainian effort to, to cross that Dnieper River, potentially towards Crimea uh, or the Sea of Azov. It might take attention away from other areas of the front line where we know that attacks have been intensifying. But as of now, Ukraine is saying that it's not going to affect their plans. A lot more to come here. Claire Sebastian, great to have you on this. Thank you. And later in the show, we will actually hear the view of Ukraine's economy minister when I speak uh, with that person in a bit. Meantime, there are tabloid newspapers in Britain with blood on their hands. That's the dramatic claim from Prince Harry and the High Court in London. The Duke of Sussex giving evidence in his lawsuit against the mirror group of newspapers, which he accuses of phone hacking. Nada Bashir is following this story. Let's join her now outside the court. Nada, good morning. So look, this is a very personal issue for Prince Harry and also becoming quite tense in court. Yeah, absolutely. He's been extremely vocal about the media's intrusion in his personal life. He's spoken about it in his memoir, in his Netflix docuseries and other uh, press interviews. But of course, this is a very different environment. He is now facing the cross-examination by defense lawyers in the courtroom behind me. Now, Prince Harry has uh, given his witness statement, a 50-page document detailing the impact the British tabloids under uh, Mirror Newspaper Group have had on not only his life, but those or of that of those around him. He's spoken about the details uh, revealed uh, in media uh, publications, including, of course, the tabloids, which he says show the telltale signs of unlawful information gathering. We're talking about phone hacking, about uh, the interception of Prince Harry's voicemails and the voicemails of those uh, around him, as well as the use of private investigators to glean uh, information not only about his life, but that of his late mother, uh, Princess Diana. Now, he's gone into detail around the impact this has had. He said it caused him to feel a huge amount of paranoia growing up. It caused his circle of friends to become smaller and smaller and also uh, caused him to suffer from bouts of depression. And he's uh, spoken about the details that have been revealed in some of these articles. A number of them have been submitted as part of his claim by his lawyers, including uh, private intimate details around conversations he had with his brother William, the Prince uh, of Wales in the past, as well as the ups and downs of his past relationship with former girlfriend Chelsea Davy. details which he said eventually led to the breakdown of their relationship. Now, he's spoken, of course, very recently about uh, how this has impacted his family, including his wife, uh, Meghan Markle, the Duchess of Sussex, and children. It was a big reason as to why they chose uh, to withdraw from their positions as senior members of the royal family and to relocate their family from the United Kingdom uh, to California. But this is a deeply personal matter uh, for the prince. He says that he wants to hold those responsible to account to transform the media landscape uh, here in Britain, particularly, of course, uh, over the, the, the death of his mother, which he feels was deeply uh, influenced and impacted by uh, the tabloids uh, who have been, of course, highly interested in the ins and outs of the British royal family's life. Uh -huh.
Nada Bashir, live force in London. Nada, thank you. And across France, demonstrators are taking to the streets once again for the 14th day of protests over controversial pension reforms. Take a look. These were the scenes in France earlier today. But now one of the country's main union leaders says that today's protests could be, quote, one of the last. Let's get the latest now with CNN Paris correspondent Melissa Bell. Melissa, you've been covering these protests. Help me understand from the ground what you're seeing and how this compares perhaps to some of the other protests that you brought us. What we're seeing so far are lower numbers than we've seen really at any of the protests so far. Uh, this is the very front of the protest right here. You can see the substantial police presence there at the help of the march, uh, trying to make sure uh, that there aren't the sort of scenes of disorder that we've seen so much over the course of the last few months. And yet, uh, even if the numbers are down, Rahel, authorities say that they expect about a thousand more radical protesters to be taking part today, including about two to three hundred far left demonstrators. So they're not expecting this to go uh, entirely smoothly. In fact, we've already had a couple of bursts of tear gas, but certainly lower numbers than we've seen before, partly because essentially this reform will go through and there's very little they can do about it. Even the vote on Thursday in the Parliament has essentially been defanged by the government. This reform will become law in September and this, the union says, uh, the main union says, is probably the last burst of anger that they will organize ahead of the summer. All right, Melissa Bell, live force in Paris, covering it all. And among the protesters in France, air traffic controllers. The CEO of Air France discussed the issue in an interview with our Richard Quest. The French air traffic controllers, right, we don't support, whether it's high altitude or whether it's uh, takeoff and landing off the, t- you know, off the, uh, you know, in the French region. I mean, this, is a, this has been a real challenge for us for the last five months. Uh, so, you know, our belief is this needs to reduce or this needs to stop. There are some laws in France that are probably going to be introduced um, toward the air traffic controllers that are not in place today, which will help us react. But it's, uh, you know, some days we have to reduce up to 30% of our flights in Paris at no notice. It's, uh, it's been a challenge. Ever since this, uh, this uh, retirement reform has come in, uh, we've, we've, been, uh, we've managed our staff quite well. We have not uh, internally been affected by, uh, you know, what we've seen across the country, especially in transportation when it comes to strikes. Were you tempted to take a stand? On, on that particular issue, I'm okay with it. You know, it's, uh, it was very well thought through, a uh, lot of debate, a lot of debate, a lot of exemptions uh, were okay. When I talk specifically about our company, um, I think it's in terms of what we've got in place for our pilots and our cabin crew and our ground staff, uh, we've got enough protection that the impact is, uh, is quite minimal. Um, in other industries, I mean, I don't know the details of it and how much it impacts, but to say, make a statement about our company and how it's, uh, how it's impacted, you know, we think it's uh, it's not bad. Um, the uh, you know, I'm not French, I'm not Dutch, uh, but when I look at what we have in the Netherlands and we have in other countries, it seems quite reasonable. Meantime, Apple has unveiled the tech of tomorrow at its conference in its California headquarters. Take a look. This is the Apple Vision Pro. It's a mixed reality headset with the hefty price tag of $3,500. The company says it should be available early next year. And CNN's John Sarlin has the details on what exactly you're getting with the new hardware. 
A big day here in Cupertino, California, where Tim Cook and Apple have unveiled Apple's biggest new device since the Apple Watch in 2015. Vision Pro, a mixed reality headset, sits atop your head like a ski goggle. Now, you might know virtual reality, a full screen that blocks everything out. This is mixed reality, a combination of the real world and the virtual world overlaid on one another that Apple is banking on being the future of computing. Now. What does it do? That is the big question. Apple showed a video which had a desk with different workstations with different screens that you can adjust. They showed a home cinema with a TV screen as big as you want. But the big question though is, will people spend $3,500 on it? Especially when its closest competitor, Meta's Oculus, is only around $300. Well, Tim Cook and Apple say that they've cracked the code on a device they're calling historic It'll be available in stores early next year. John Sarlin, CNN, Cupertino, California. And joining me now on the latest is Dan Ives. He is the managing director and senior equity analyst at Wedbush Securities. Dan, good morning. Welcome to the program. So this is the first time in years, really, that Apple has launched a new product like this. I know you were bullish broadly on Apple. Are you bullish on this product, too? Look, I believe it's revolutionary. In terms of what this does, laying out, I think, the next decade of growth for Apple on the metaverse and on the AI strategy. And that's really what, what Cook's doing here. Rahel, this is about the golden install base of Cupertino, and they're going after developers front and center. But Dan, are you concerned about how it looks? I mean, it has been described by at least critics, some analysts, journalists, as sort of awkward looking, not cool. When you think about Apple and the brand, you think sleek design, you think cool. Are you concerned about the way this looks? Look, I think ultimately they've had the golden touch. Perfection is what comes out of Cupertino. And I think what this has done, it really makes what, what Meta's done almost table stakes, you know, relative to the technology. And I think this is just the first iteration on a much broader strategy that Apple's laying out for the penetration of its developers, of consumers. And I believe two, three years from now, this is a 1,500-hour device. You know, right now, obviously, you're not going to see mass adoption coming out of the gates. This is really just the first step in a much broader strategy coming out of Cupertino. And so you mentioned Meta. Um, I wonder, because you pointed out in your research note, you admitted that Meta's Oculus uh, had said the success there has been more tepid. Why then do you think that Apple's Vision Pro would have a different outcome? Because ultimately, I mean, they're the LeBron James, Michael Jordan of hardware. I mean, if you look at what Apple comes out with, you have 2 billion iOS devices worldwide. And it's about that penetration. I mean, go back to AirPods. Coming out of that, they thought it would be a fantasy, the skeptics, that they'd sell maybe 5, 10 million units. Two years later, they sold 100 million units in a year. I think it just speaks to what they're able to come out with into their ecosystem. And I think this is almost magical from a technology perspective. Probably the biggest innovation we've seen in the last decade, far as through the trees, I think this is really laying out what could be an inflection point in Apple's growth. Dan, I take your point that Apple is similar to LeBron James. But of course, as you know, and if this NBA a season is any indication, sometimes even LeBron James misses. So could this be a miss? And they, and just like LeBron, they missed on HomePod. I mean, they missed when it came to that. But overall, 
the reason that they just continue to really be unparalleled in terms of the installers, in terms of what they've done, despite the macro, is that they understand their developers and consumer base when to ultimately release the products at what time. And I think this is really weighing the groundwork for what's going to be a broader AI strategy within the app store. And I think that's really some of the breadcrumbs that Cook and, the, and really the team are laying out in Cupertino. And, and Dan, that's a perfect segue because obviously you follow this space certainly much more closely than I do, but much more closely than most. Where is Apple on AI? Because I think about just some of the chatter and some of the news, and it's a lot of chat GPT, but, but where is Apple on the whole artificial intelligence space? Yeah, right now, I mean, in this Game of Thrones, the winner is clearly Microsoft, NVIDIA, and, and obviously filed by Google. But Apple, it's all about the ecosystem. They're now going to start to really lay out for developers to build AI-driven apps, use cases within the app store. And that's going to ultimately be, we look, we think on some of the parts, this could ultimately add 30 to $40 per share to Apple. But that's the way Cupertino does it, close to the vest. They're not the first one out. But it just is why they're on the verge, again, of $3 trillion mark cap, because they continue to sort of be the gold standard in tech. And then, Dan, beyond just the Vision Pro, what are you looking ahead in terms of product launches? What are you most excited about moving forward over the next 12 months or so? Yeah, right now it's a drum roll to what I view as almost a mini super cycle. iPhone 15 anniversary edition comes out this fall. 250 million have not upgraded their iPhones in four years. I think that's why we are going in to what's going to be just a massive release cycle for Apple, despite the macro and everything we see coming out of our Asia supply chain checks being in Asia the last few weeks, pretty bullish despite a macro that's not roses and rainbows. And I think that's why coming into this year, many bet against Apple. But yet again, I think you know they're, they're showing you know why they're at the gold standard at the top of that mountain. We shall see, Dan. Sometimes even the mighty have misses, so we shall certainly see. But that is Dan Ives, Managing Director and Senior Equity Analyst at Wedbush Securities. Wedbush, by the way, having an outperform on Apple with a 205 price target. Thanks for joining me from Westfield, New Jersey. Always good to see you, Dan. All right, coming up on First Move, Japanese stocks trading the highest levels in decades. What's behind the rally? Plus, the impact of today's destruction of a critical dam. Ukraine's Minister of Economy joins me next. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support, your sleep number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 
Welcome back to First Move. Japanese stocks finishing Tuesday's session up by almost 1%. The Nikkei riding a four-day winning streak. It is up by almost 25% since early January, also trading at its highest levels in decades. The Nikkei's rally so far this year is close to the Nasdaq's 26% advance. Big turnaround from the Nikkei's almost 10% drop in 2022. Famed investor Warren Buffett helping contribute to the bullish mood. With more to explain now, Mark Stewart, who joins me from Tokyo. So, Mark, 25%, 26% year to date. Pretty impressive. What's behind the rally? And it's outperforming the S&P 500. Just had to mention yeah. that as well, Rahel. <laughs> All right. So as you know from covering markets, there's not usually just one factor. There's many things at play. First of all, let's just talk about opportunity. Right now, the Japanese yen is weak. The American dollar, for example, it goes very far here in Japan. So that's one reason why traders may be attracted to the Nikkei. They feel like it's, it's, it's good value for their money and it can be a potentially good opportunity. The second reason you mentioned Warren Buffett, it's this whole concept of endorsement. Warren Buffett has been spending some time in Japan. He likes what he sees. He's impressed with the business community, the way they operate. And that goes a long way. Warren Buffett's word carries a lot of weight. I want to play part of a conversation I had earlier today with an economist uh, right here in Tokyo. Take a listen. What he said was that when you invest in a company, you think about investments where uh, in 20 years, 30 years, that's going to still be a business. So if you think about Japan, uh, there are about 5,500 companies worldwide older than 200 years. More than half of those are here in Japan. So it's, it's a solid place to park your money. All right. So there is some stability here. And along those themes, if you look at other markets across Asia, let's just focus on China, because that's that's obviously a big point of investment right now for new investment. There is a bit of turbulence and it is viewed that perhaps the more stable waters of Japan are, are more attractive right now than China. But Rahel, as we both know very well, these markets are fickle and things can change very, very quickly. Well, they sure can. And Mark, I understand that the monetary policy environment is different in Japan, certainly than the U.S. and many other places in the world right now. But in terms of larger macro concerns that have seemed to plague the markets for quite some time now, walk me through the sentiment there in Japan. Is, is that not the case, those sort of macro concerns that we're all sort of you know, dealing with right now? Well, a lot of times we hear that the stock market is not the broader economy. And let's face it, there are some real challenges here in Japan. For example, we have an aging population that impacts productivity, that impacts output, that impacts the greater economic health. Inflation, while not nearly as bad as other parts of the world, that's a big challenge as well. Companies here, too, though, are also in a bit of a... Of a let's say, theme of transition. They realize the importance of bigger dividends. They realize that some of the business practices in the West are worth replicating. So they are starting to do that. But broadly speaking, Japan's economy, it's not without challenges. Of course not. And we've also seen some of the major corporations there also start to, you know, offer pay increases for its employees. So a lot to watch in Japan. Mark Stewart, mm -hmm. great to see you. Thank you. And we have more First Move after the break.
Welcome back. And back to our top story now. A major dam collapsing in southern Ukraine. Kyiv claims the Russian military blew up the dam, quote, in panic. But the Kremlin says it was sabotaged by Ukrainian forces. Downstream, people are getting out of their homes as floodwaters there rise. A reservoir upstream from the dam supplies water for the Zuporizhia nuclear power plant. Now, the U.N. nuclear watchdog, IAEA, says there is no immediate threat to the plant. But, of course, something to watch here. Sam Kiley joins me now. So, Sam, as we said, both sides clearly blaming the other. Uh, What more do we know? Well, we know it also, Rahel, could have been structural failure. Again, that would be the responsibility of the Russians who were in occupation of the dam. Uh, There are satellite images that show a breach in the dam a few days ago, and that may just have been widened and caused this collapse. But of course, it could also have been uh, destroyed by one or other side. I think the evidence will emerge on that later on. But what I can tell you very dramatically now, Rahel, is that I've been in touch with Ukrainian Uh, in a position to know Ukrainian source on the ground with uh, capability, shall we say, to monitor the Russian positions. And this source is saying that they have seen Russian soldiers washed away, their trenches inundated, Russian soldiers' accommodation knocked over and inundated, and Russian soldiers abandoning their equipment uh, on the east side of the banks of the Dnipro, because that is the area where very large numbers of Russian forces, at least up until very recently, have been based, constantly shelling and harassing civilian and military targets just across the river, including among their targets the city of Kherson, which of course is now also being inundated among 80 settlements that are being affected by this flood. Uh, Many thousand, 16,000 people, according to the Ukrainian authorities, on their side of the bank likely to be affected. But the greater amount of effect from this flooding is in the Russian-controlled territory. This is still Ukraine. This is occupied Ukrainian territory. But the very large number of Russian forces had in the past been gathered in that location. And if they weren't moved out in advance of this breach, then they would inevitably be those who are most uh, dramatically affected by this uh, massive amount of flooding that has been unleashed by the uh, breaking of this dam, Rahel? Well, Sam, I want to circle back to something you just said there when you said that Russian equipment appears to be flooded away or trenches appear to be flooded, uh, raising questions about what Russia stands to gain uh, if, in fact, it was responsible for this. Help me understand what Ukraine is saying in terms of why Russia would do this. Well, the Russians, uh, sorry, the Ukrainians are saying the Russians did this in what they say was a panic to make it harder in the event that the Ukrainians would choose to do so to cross the Dnipro River as part of what was anticipated to be the much vaunted offensive that we are seeing the early stages of elsewhere in the country and indeed inside Russian territory. This is the Ukrainian offensive. So essentially the Ukrainian argument is the Russians did this to slow them down. The Ukrainian counter-argument coming from none other than the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense is that, oh no, we saw this coming. We've made plans. It wouldn't slow us down. It is nothing to do. Uh, It will have no military effect on us at all. Rahel. Sam Kiley, Live Force in Kharkiv. Sam, thank you. I want to now bring in Yulia Sviradinko, the economy, Ukrainian economy minister, uh, joining us now. Yulia, thanks for being with us. Yes. Hello. Uh, as, as you just heard our correspondent lay out there, uh, both sides clearly pointing the blame at the other. Can you help me understand what evidence Ukraine has uh, that, that makes you believe that this was Russia uh, deliberately? 
we actually we absolutely believe that it was made by by Russians and uh, to to destroy it, uh, such uh, them actually it's it's impossible by some external shelling uh, as we heard that some some Russians said that it was made by by this external shelling we're absolutely sure that it was detonated and uh, if you remember last last year uh, for, for the first time they announced that uh, it would be detonated and that this announcement goes from the Russian side that's why we're absolutely sure that it, it was made by Russians and uh, the, the dam of Kahovka uh, was stationed it, it was detonated by Russian uh, at, at approximately two 50 uh, at night. So uh, and now, as as you have heard, and uh, 80 settlements uh, right now are now in a flood zone. And what we're trying to do right now is to evacuate people as as quickly as, as it possible. So to be clear, you don't believe the uh, theory that this could have just been structural damage, uh, although this is still under the control of Russia. That this could have just been structural damage here. Or structural failure? We're, no, we're absolutely sure that it's not a structural damage. We're absolutely sure that it was done by Russian side, and uh, it's it's the biggest man-made disaster uh, that they made, and it's a, uh, you know it's a, it's a violation of the international law. And uh, I, I think that th these uh, damages uh, they, it was used, and this explosive and this detonation was used as ecological uh, weapon. Uh, that and uh, that's why we're absolutely sure that it is kind of, you know, ecological genocide that was made by, by Russians. In terms of your biggest concern now, as we've been reporting, uh, people have been evacuated, both Russian and Ukrainian. What is your biggest concern right now on the ground? So we, we, we're trying to evacuate people as soon as possible. And uh, we uh, also, uh, in a parallel, uh, we're trying to provide uh, with the water and try, trying to find a way how to provide with the water uh, people that, that left their homes. And uh, what we're trying to do, it, of course, you know, Ukraine uh, are fighting at, at, at different fronts, on economic front and military front. And, you know, this region is an is a industrial region. And it's very important for us as well uh, for industry. To, to, to keep going. Uh, and we understand that uh, if uh, the, the, the consequences of, of this disaster might be the fact that industry will fully stop uh, because we are fully focused on people. We are trying to save water for people, not for um, running their uh, enterprises. So that's why our main concern that Russian should pay uh, for this uh, disaster they should pay for, for, for this genocide and uh, this is the the, the, the main uh, I, I think my my request to international society to, to pay one attention once again and to understand that uh, what what they're trying to do it, it's to um, uh, the, the Russia tried to prove they prove once again that this is an all, all the time existing threats. Uh, for Ukraine and for international society. So, but now we are fo fully focused on, on evacuation. In terms of the power plan, as we said earlier, the IAEA has said that it won't cause any immediate issues, but how concerned are you about future damage? We are really concerned about future damage and where we are going to observe on, on that situation. And uh, today, uh, our Prime Minister and President uh, all applied to international society to to, uh, to provide us the more strength in supervision over, over these objects, as we think it might be uh, also threats from the Russian side.
We understand they act like, honestly, they act like a terroristic state and no one can predict uh, their their actions. And that's why why we, you know, ask you also to have this small talk with you, as we would like to to say that uh, there are huge losses for economy, there are huge losses uh, in sense of, uh, of, of, of people. So that's why what we need to do is just to strengths uh, your support and not to afraid Russia and to keep uh, fighting together with Ukraine. And earlier in the show, we saw the impact uh, already to some of the commodity markets. Help me understand in terms of the economic impact of what we've seen with the dam, uh, what you're watching. So uh, for, for economic uh, I think that it's around one billion US dollar for potential losses uh, to transport and social infrastructure. Also, we estimate 500 million US dollar like a direct, direct losses for now. So river river ports and uh, uh, shipwreck damages for 120 million dollars. Uh, also, we, we are. Uh, now uh, estimates that there, there is also schools and uh, there are damages of the school uh, at least uh, 100 million but of course it's it, it is we would be ready to finalize all these numbers um, uh, i think in in a few days and of course electricity generation uh, losses for 1 million a year so that's that's 100 million a year. So that's why I think that in a few days we will be ready to estimate all losses that we have in economic sense. Yulia Sverdenko, we appreciate the time today. We know it is a, a tough day for your nation. We appreciate you being here. She is the Ukrainian economy minister. Coming up on First Move, an ambitious goal to reach net zero emissions in less than 30 years. How some of the major airplanes and airlines, rather, are planning to hit that target We will take you to this year's IATA meeting coming up next. From executive producers Park Chanuk and Robert Downey Jr., The Sympathizer is the new HBO original limited series based on the Pulitzer Prize winning novel of the same name. Join me, Philip Nguyen, a scholar of Vietnamese American culture and the cast and crew as we discuss the making of this historic series. Subscribe now to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and stream HBO's The Sympathizer starting April 14th exclusively on Max. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks up and running this Tuesday. All the major averages are lower in early trading. You can see the Dow, NASDAQ, and S&P all off, let's call it about two-tenths of a percent. The NASDAQ off about three-tenths of a percent. Tech stocks leading the declines. That's after Monday's across-the-board weakness. But take a look at oil stocks. They're actually pulling back again. And this is despite Saudi Arabia's surprise production cut over the weekend. I think we can pull up oil stocks for you. We can see how WTI and Brent are doing. Well, they're pulling back. Apple, meantime, also in the news today, shares of the tech giant losing a bit of ground after hitting an intraday record high on Monday. Perhaps a sell in the news reaction after the unveiling of its new mixed reality headset on Monday. Also, shares of Coinbase down sharply. The U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, announcing about an hour ago that it is suing the company. And take a look at that. Shares are off about 18 percent, 17 and a half percent. Officials are charging Coinbase with operating as an unregistered exchange and broker. We will have much more on this developing story a little later in the program. 
But major U.S. airlines, they're actually bouncing back from the pandemic with share prices flying. United is up 30 percent so far this year. And Delta and American Airlines have gained about 15 percent each. The airline's trade body, the International Air Transport Association, is holding its annual meeting in Istanbul right now. And it's announced a roadmap to reach net zero carbon emissions by 2050. But in, 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 in an interview with Richard Quest, the CEO of Qatar Airways says that he doesn't believe the industry will achieve that goal. Listen. I'm one of the only CEOs, I think, that have been very frank that we will not be able to achieve the target. SAF, the volumes you need will not be available. And coincidentally, in the Qatar Economic Forum, the uh, boss of Boeing did say that anything will not happen till after the middle of the current century. So I was right. We won't be able to achieve. Let us not fool ourselves. The whole industry is is predicated, is just frothing about this idea of net zero by 2050. We will not even reach the targets we have for 2030, I assure you, because there is no enough raw material to, uh, to get the volumes of SAF. I've spoken to, I don't want to mention the oil companies, and they said that the volume they need is not available. So this you... is why uh, not enough volume of SAF is being produced. You know, you cannot only produce SAF in the United States and, you know, uh, cater for the U.S. carriers. We are talking about the global net zero emission by 2050. It's not only one region and it's not available. And what we are trying to do is for PR exercise, saying that it will happen and it will be done, it will be achieved, but it won't be able to be achieved. And the governments will use this to line their pockets by putting levies. You, you, you're a bit like, you know, the, um, the boy and the emperor's new clothes standing there when the emperor goes past and say, the emperor's naked. You're sort of saying what nobody really wants to hear, which is that it can't be done. I'm not saying it can't be done, but to do it in the time frame the industry is far behind. Well, the head of United Airlines disagrees, saying air carriers can deliver net zero by 2050. According to Scott Kirby, getting there requires an industry to be built to supply sustainable aviation fuel. Many of my counterparts here uh, at this meeting will complain about, you know, it doesn't exist yet. Like, what am I supposed to do? And my point to them and what United is doing is we have to make the investments in the companies that are going to build and create this. We can't count on someone else to do it for us. Even government. You can't count on well, government. Well, we need gov We have to have government support. And so in the United States, the Inflation Reduction Act, I think the, the sustainability provisions are some of the most impactful legislation that have passed in decades. And that creates the foundation that this industry can be built on. The rest of the world is frothing about the industry, the Inflation Reduction Act, yeah. and trying to work out how to respond, yeah. in, a, in a sense. But even if you get all of that, yeah. I suggest you can't hit net zero by the dates and targets because you can't generate enough SAF. Even if you get the SAF, yeah. you can't reduce the carbon because of the growth, the growth yeah. limits. There has to be more drastic action. You're wrong, <laughs> is the answer. Um, 
You, we can get there. 30 years ago, wind and solar, everyone said it can never compete with coal or nat gas. It'll never be economic. Today, it's cheaper. This is going to work, um, but it, it had to have the right government framework, and we're, all, we're closer. We're not there yet, but the government, if the government framework makes it competitive, we can make this happen. Meanwhile, the CEO of Korean Air says that he's willing to make concessions to U.S. and EU regulators in order to merge with Asiana Airlines. No, I'm not going to let go. I'm full on and I'm uh, I'll fight to the end uh, to uh, to gain this uh, approval. And uh, we are talking with DOJ and EU in a positive way. And uh, I expect uh, some sort of a resolution by uh, towards this, uh, towards, towards end of this year. Mm. So that really depends on what concessions you're prepared to make. That's part of the request from both uh, committees, uh, U.S. and e, uh, EU, and we're fully committed to meeting their request, and uh, we'll do whatever it takes to get this deal done. Mm. Is there a point upon which you will say, this isn't worth it? Uh, no. I will, no matter what, I'm going through with it. Why? Because it is very important for uh, Korean Air and Asiana employees, our family, and, uh, for, and uh, for the industry, uh, air, aviation, airline industry in Korea. It's a very important deal. But I suppose the argument would be, well, if, Korea, if you don't, if the deal fails, Asiana either gets bought by somebody else, mm -hmm. probably not since you're the dominant carrier yeah. there, or it goes out of business and somebody else starts up. Yes, uh, but um, to me, this is uh, very important uh, because I've committed to it once and many of our employees and uh, are looking forward to it and looking upon me to make this, get this deal done and I will get it done. More to come there and more to come here. Still ahead, crypto clamped down. The U.S. government suing Coinbase one day after taking action against another crypto exchange, Binance. What all of this means for customers just ahead. Welcome back to First Move. The U.S. government coming down hard against two of the world's best-known crypto exchanges, Binance and Coinbase. The SEC announcing just a short time ago that it is suing Coinbase for violating securities rules. And you can see Coinbase is off about 17 percent. Coinbase shares down sharply again, 17.4 percent, let's call it. All of this after officials filed a more than 130-page complaint against Binance and its CEO on Monday. Allison Morrow joins me now. So, Allison, I want to start with Binance. Binance says it plans to defend itself and denies these allegations, but it appears some investors really not sticking around to see how this ends. We are seeing major outflows already. Yeah, it's absolutely a panic moment in crypto right now. Um, investors overnight transferred about $800 million out of Binance, which is both overseas and part of its U.S. division. And I think that's really striking just because of the nature of crypto traders who are who have an almost religious devotion to these assets and tend to tolerate risk really well. But I think this all kind of comes back to there's a shell shock in the industry still after FTX, which was a smaller rival to Binance, imploded spectacularly and is now the center of a massive fraud investigation in the U.S. 
the industry is still just like reeling from that and they're scared and the regulatory crackdown seems to be stepping up and that's, you know, fueling a lot of fear in an already volatile industry. Well, Allison, let's let's head there now, because it does appear to be something of a a larger, more widespread crackdown in terms of uh, Coinbase. What more details do we know there? Yeah, so just 24 hours after the SEC sued Binance, it's now suing Coinbase, which is not surprising, but the similarities between the two lawsuits are pretty striking. And the similarities to FTX are also pretty striking. Um, So all of these platforms are accused of uh, running unregistered aka illegal platforms in the United States. They are, if you live in the United States and you're a day trader, you're not allowed to trade crypto derivatives. That's just against the law and the platforms who are selling these derivatives are supposed to register with the SEC or the uh, CFTC if they're going to offer these products in the United States. And none of those companies have registered with these entities, so they don't have a license. It's really, uh, it's big for crypto. I mean, they are in a transition point where they're trying to gain mainstream authenticity and and mainstream adoption. And that's really hard when these regulators um, haven't, like the crypto industry says they haven't provided enough clarity for them to register and to do it the right way. Of course, this is all going to get worked out um, in settlements that we'll see over the next months and years. Um, But bottom line, this is not a good look for crypto six or seven months after one of the biggest implosions in the industry. And we're seeing that reflected in the prices of these assets, which are all falling right now. And as you mentioned, Coinbase, a U.S. traded company, is down some 16 percent today. And I think I I hear you correctly when you say biggest implosion, you're referring to FTX and SBF, who is, of course, awaiting trial. I think that is scheduled to begin in October. So Allison laid it out very well. A lot to watch here in the crypto space. Thank you. Thank you. In lighter news, Starbucks is bringing its controversial line of olive oil-infused coffee to more cities in the U.S. The Aliato range first launched in the U.S. and Italy earlier this year. So the drink is made by adding a spoonful of olive oil, of course, a staple in Italian culture, to coffee. The product has gained global publicity and also garnered some mixed reviews, with some celebrating its alleged health benefits and others claiming it made them run to the bathroom. Back in February, our Poppy Harlow asked the former Starbucks CEO, Howard Schultz, about the new beverage. Listen. You think this transforms coffee? I know it'll transform the coffee industry. A very few people outside of Starbucks have tasted it. No consumer research whatsoever. Nothing. Isn't that a risk? I don't think so. I mean, I just think everything we've ever done that has succeeded at Starbucks is proven in the cup. Current CEO says Oleato is, quote, one of the top five product launches in the last five years. And finally, NASA's mission to explore a metallic asteroid is set for liftoff this October. It's called the Psyche Mission. It was originally meant to launch last year, but a software issue prevented takeoff. The mission will use a first-of-its-kind spacecraft to study the asteroid, and NASA says the ship should reach it by 2029. It will then orbit the asteroid for 26 months. So good to be with you today, and that is it for the show. I'm Rahel Solomon. Connect the World is next.
quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.